Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. I am Steven. And I'm Daniel. And we are still alive. It has been a while. We do apologize. Things got pretty busy uh, in our personal lives, professional lives. So um, we're excited to come back to our first 500 year series. The last episode that we had left off on was exorcism in the early church, uh, specifically in the second century. So we're going to continue that today. And of course, if you like what we're doing here, if you like the first 500 year series, be sure to subscribe to the channel, uh, like this video, comment. We do respond to most of the comments. Um, and tap the bell for notifications. Tap the bell for notifications so that you can be a part of this experience every single time that an episode drops. I'm just happy I didn't forget my part. <laughs> and I'm happy you made it here today. So uh, we are sitting across from each other in this makeshift studio that once was my office um, until about five minutes ago. We are holding microphones, so this is very makeshift, but we're going to make this work. Uh, tomorrow's Thanksgiving, so we had the privilege of being able to sit across from each other. It's been a long time since we've sat across from each other, actually. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know how to Usually do this. remote. It's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, when we did this, it was the early, uh, the early days where we had lav mics. and uh, We were in my dining room. In your dining room, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, we've come a long way, obviously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. We've made it to your study. <laughs> This is what it looks like to make it, people. All right, so where we left off was um, we talked about how the the Christian movement is moving beyond um, merely evangelizing amongst Jews um, and this group of Gentiles called the God-fearers. And God-fearers, to remind everybody, were Gentiles that in one way or another and in differing differing nearness and, and farness, uh, attach themselves to the life of a local synagogue um, and acknowledged um, Yahweh and Yahwism in general. So that was the, the God-fearers. And it was pretty, it was pretty uh, low-hanging fruit for the early Christian movement to evangelize among these peoples. So a lot of the early controversies of the first century with circumcision and all that was mainly dealing with this kind of intra-Jewish debate uh, that included, like, what are we going to do with these God-fearers uh, with regard to circumcision? Um, now, when we move into the second century, we're moving beyond that that circle, and we're looking we're looking towards the pagan world um, that n- knows nothing of this, <laughs> is not a part of this Jewish um, milieu. So what we talked about in the last episode was that Christians, their view of the world was very much informed by Hebraism, and... Um, its view of the Gentile nations as being under the domination of these gods, these divinities that God had originally created to lead the nations back to him, but who, uh, through subsequent history from the Tower of Babel onward, had coaxed these nations into worshiping them and had formed bargains and pacts with the peoples. Uh, Each city sort of had its own god that it was especially devoted to. And we talked about how with the building of empire, we start to see the amalgamation of gods the and, and the pantheon is building. Um, so now, of course, here in the Greco-Roman world, uh, the, the, the Christians, they saw that what needed to happen first with this group was that they needed to have those bonds with those gods broken first. And that was typically through the rite of exorcism, um, which is why exorcism becomes so closely linked with uh, the rite of a Christian initiation, which is baptism. So it's like you're, you're exercised first, and then you're baptized, and now you're a full part of the community. Your ties to the gods are broken. That that mafia-like uh, relationship, which Christian, the way that Christians saw it, 
has now been broken and you're free. And it it kind of, we started to kind of explain uh, or start to answer the question of how how does Christianity begin to spread? Um, And part of that answer was with, uh, through miracles and exorcism. You know, if we, if we look at the sources, it's, that's what the sources tell us that, uh, well, people believed that miracles were happening among the Christians. People believed that they had the, the authority, pagans, from pagan sources, that Christians had the authority to, to rule over these, these demons that we thought were gods. Mm-hmm. And it was super effective uh, in many circles. Yeah, and we, we left off talking a little bit about how we could see, um, for many, that the impact of that message uh, would have would have been us in a subjective way, like very powerful, you know, to hear that, you know, what have these gods ever done for you? Really? You know, um, for some, you know, for, we'll talk in this episode a little bit differently, but. Well, it changed, it, it changed their whole cosmology. It threw everything upside down. Mm-hmm. It took all of the Roman um, system and said that system is actually evil. Yeah. And those aren't gods. Those are demons. Everything was switched for them. Um, that was no small feat. By the Christians to accomplish. I mean, it, it's going to take hundreds of years for that message to get through, uh, but the beginnings of it are happening here in the second century. So what we're going to do in this episode now is flip the table. We are going to, we've seen the, the Greco-Roman uh, pagan world from the eyes of these early Christians. Now we're going to flip it and we're going to understand Greco-Roman religion and public life from their eyes. Um, and we're going to look back at this small cult that keeps kind of popping up in city after city, especially as we move into the mid second century is starting to become more noticeable. Yeah. But we're in the tens of thousands now throughout the empire. Yeah. And so now we're going to, we're going to put on our pagan lenses and look back uh, into Christianity and perhaps like, you know, by the end of this, we'll be able to see why um, Romans, uh, Roman authorities would have taken this um, hostile stance in, in, in many uh portions of its history towards this movement. But I also, I also hope we, we accomplish in this episode and we show folks that um, there's, there's a vitality of paganism. I think the, the tendency is to say, well, yeah, I mean, look at the Christians, how well organized they are. They got great theology. If they have some philosophers, of course they're going to overtake the empire. It's not inevitable. This is a hard-fought battle. And hopefully by the end of the episode, you'll see that, no, the pagans had reasonable, rational arguments against the Christians and Roman religion was very sober and rational and reasonable. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. I think that's a really good point that these early Christians, especially we can tend to think like, Oh yeah, of course, like Christianity, Christendom. I mean, you know, Aquinas, Augustine, St. John Chrysostom, these great figures of Christianity, of course, Christianity was going to be a, a force to reckon with, you know, with the Roman empire, not at this stage. We're talking about, nobodies i mean for the the pagans you know they're looking at these christians they say oh yeah ignatius of antioch to us that's a champion but at this time that was nobody it's a nobody Mm -hmm. um you're you're coming up against what plato you know you're coming up against like the philosophers the philosophical tradition that we have plus like generations and generations of our our religion so um we have to try to get into their mindset and understand it and and i hope that by the end of it we'll have a round rounded out picture of uh, how the christian movement is spreading and what that looks like across the empire so to start that off then dan why don't um why don't you kind of set the stage for us yeah. with roman religion give us like the thirty thousand foot view of what makes romans tick what uh what is their religion like what's well, the public what's, life what, like yeah what are the perspectives what are the motivations <laughs> uh, what is their religion like traditional roman religion like um 
I think it's obvious. So we're not gonna we're not gonna go into the obvious uh, pantheon, right? Uh, Jupiter, Juno, Minerva, you know, all of the got Mars and all these all the pantheon of gods. Those are there. Um, we don't have to go deep into that. But yes, it is obviously a polytheistic religion at a high level. Uh, what we really want to do is uh, perhaps get a sense of of like you said, what what made them tick? How did they think about things? Um, how did they think about the gods? Um, how do they practice their rights? Those types of uh, those types of things, so that we can better understand them. Uh, we don't need to understand all the ins and outs of the religion, basically. Yeah. So I think there's a good source um, that kind of can get us started. It's um, it's from uh, the Pontiff, the Roman Pontiff Cotta, and Cotta says this about the religion of Rome. The entirety of the religio of the Roman people is divided into rites and auspices, to which is added a third thing, namely whatever warnings the interpreters of the Sibylline books issue for the sake of foreknowledge on the basis of portents and omens. I hold that none of these religiones should ever be neglected, and I persuaded myself that Romulus and Numa laid the foundations of our state by establishing the auspices and rites, respectively and that our state could never have become so great without the greatest appeasement of the immortal gods. It's a great summary, isn't it? We have our priests, we have our auspices, our augurs, uh, auspices taken by augurs, and we have the Sibylline books. The Sibylline books, lost, unfortunately, to history, um, <clears throat> were, uh, so the Sibylline prophecies, Greek prophecies that were eventually written down in the classical age, into books. Uh, it was through legend, it was transferred over to the Romans and the Romans kept these books, but they kept them super, super secret. And what they were, they were just books and lists of oracles, right? So anytime something would happen in Rome, hey, we're being invaded or we are invading somebody, or there's a question politically or socially, Roman leaders would consult the books and they had special priests who kept these books secret from everybody else. And whoever wanted to know, the emperor, whoever would go to them and they would consult the books on this, right? We're going to invade this town. How should we approach it, right? They'd go to the books and see if there's an oracle that they can find to then tell them what they should do. And so you see in these big dynamic moments throughout the Roman, um, throughout Roman history of them consulting the books. Mm -hmm. Those books end up disappearing um, and they're kind of rewritten based on what they hear from oracles again as we move into the empire, but then completely lost to history. So don't, we actually don't know what was contained in the books. We get little glimpses of decisions that were made based on the books, but the sibling oracles are there. Um, but more importantly, you have the priesthoods and the rites, and then you have augurs, augurs who look at the signs of the times and they give you the omen. They're right? reading entrails. They, they give you a reading. Flights yeah. of birds. Right. Yeah. And what does it mean? But that's short term. You know, there's, there's not a sense in Rome religion of the on, ongoing prophecy from the gods. Right. Maybe you had that in the Greek world. Maybe you have it in the Christian world with the prophets right. speaking, Revelation, all that. You don't really have that in the Roman world. Uh, the, the omens, uh, the, the augurs were there to give you, in a moment's time, here's what this means. And it lasts for one day and then it goes away. Mm -hmm. right? there's, so there's no future predicting of the empire. That's why in that piece from Kata, it's important because he says that the evidence of the greatness of our religion and the correctness of our religion our religiones, our rights, is in the fact that look at our empire. Mm -hmm. You see the breadth and width of our empire. 
So obviously we're doing something correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, the so the a couple of things to know about Roman religion from a high level. The first thing to know is that it was generally mythless. Okay. Now people will say, well, of course they had myths. Yeah, they did. They adopted myths from the Greek poets, right? Of course, and they kind of blended them with historical accounts and all those things. That's absolutely true. Um, but the point is that myths weren't primary to them as myths were to the Greeks. Right. To Romans, what was more important was understanding how the gods should be appeased. What rites are going to work in order for them, for the gods, to serve the state properly and for us to serve them properly? So the first thing is that they're generally mythless, okay? The second thing is that a piggyback on that is that this is an empirical religion. They base everything they do on what worked. Right. So the gods are going to say some prayers and they're going to sacrifice a certain animal. And if it goes well for them, if fortune is on their side, well, then the gods have agreed with what we have done and they write it down and those rites and rituals will be will be uh, passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, so in that sense, I mean, like for as a modern corollary to that, you think of it like um, modern scientism, you know, but with <clears throat> but with gods, <laughs> and yeah. and and that the relationship is not merely with nature, but between nature and the gods, and so it was this kind of process of accumulation over the ages, and that's why tradition becomes important. Which I'm sure you're going to talk about a little bit, but that's why tradition becomes very important. It's because they're 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 saying that this is the accumulation of wisdom and experience yeah. of all the ages in or in in interaction with these gods of the cities. And that's the other reason why we would say that the the Romans were generally mythless, is that they weren't primary to them, right? Those are stories they appreciated, but it right. wasn't primary to them. Um, but they learned of their gods, not through the, not from the poets. Mm-hmm. They learned of who their gods were by observing them, by observing how their rites and religious ceremonies, for lack of a better word, worked. Yeah. Right. So if it worked, now we know who this god is, how he acts, how he thinks, what he wants. Mm-hmm. That's how they learned, and that's what they passed on generation to generation. So the point here is that Roman religion, from a high level. Uh, orthodoxy is less and less important. Uh, what's more important is orthopraxy. What should we be practicing? What should we be, we be saying to have the gods on our side, on the Roman side? And guess what? From the kingdom all the way to the start of the empire, 750 some odd years have gone by. And look at the extent of it. We're clearly appeasing the gods the way we should be appeasing them. That is a very, very tough thing to challenge if you're a Christian in the second century. Right. There's no denying the Pax Romana. There's no denying the extent of the empire and the success that the Roman approach had in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from the Roman point of view, when they would go around and say, conquer a people or, or subsume a people into the, into the Roman empire, one of the great strengths of Rome was that they didn't, as say the Assyrian Empire, you know, of, of ages past, like they didn't see it as, oh, it's our gods versus your gods, and our gods win, and then we're going to put that into our myths that somehow this god was dethroned and now this god's right. taking over. Or the Israelites. Right. Moving to Cana. Right. Yahweh is greater than your gods. <clears throat> right. So it, it, pagan, past pagan empires, in a way, um, would see their gods as sort of going out to conquer these other gods. 
Whereas the Romans didn't tend to see it that way. They actually prided themselves on the peace of these gods between all the cities that look, yeah, you're worshiping whatever Minerva over here, <laughs> you know, um, we've got this city over here that is more devoted to, to Jupiter. Um, over yeah, here ISIS is over here. ISIS. Starte over here. Yeah, exactly. You guys have your city. You got to keep those gods appeased and happy and, and, and maintain the peace. And if you do that, it goes well for all of us. Yeah. And so this is where, you, this is the other point about Roman religion, is that it's quite flexible. Yeah. It can bend. It can be flexible. And it means change can be an inherent into the, in, in the religion itself. Um, so what we're speaking of here is, is uh, in Latin, evocatio, uh, evocation, um, evoking of the gods. Uh, basically, literally meaning summoning forth the gods. So... In practice, and we have a number of instances of this throughout the, the history of the, of the Romans, when the Romans would go to a rival city, like you said, it wouldn't be about uh, Jupiter conquering right uh, that city. It's more about first addressing the god of that city. Literally, they had a right where the general, a commander, or even a priest would be brought in to address that city's god in some ceremony, to call on the god to come to the Roman side. And if you come to the Roman side, we will give you just as good, if not better, rites and ceremonies and honor. Because we Romans, we know how to treat the gods. Mm. We treat them well. And so by doing that, they're able to expand their empire, but also preserve the rites and traditions that have hold, held fast for hundreds of years, even before they got there. So now... When they are approached by a Christian, not only are they saying, oh, we've we've known how to appease the gods for seven centuries, eight centuries. No, no, we, we've been able to appease the gods who go back thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Isis from Egypt, you know. Right. Um, so very, very powerful. And so the, the religion of the Romans is, is like I said, flexible, mm -hmm. and it can change. Okay. The Romans were super comfortable with saying that their religion was started by men in civic societies. Super comfortable saying that. They felt like, well, yeah, because it's empirical. Yeah, we hear like, oh, it's just a man-made religion. And people will say that, like non-believers will say that as like a trite against like Christianity. And we're like, oh, no, it's not, you know. But for, for Romans, they'd be like, well, of course it is. Yeah, of course it is. Because civic society predated these rites that we're now practicing today. Yeah. Because we're learning as we go along, conditio deorum knowledge of the gods. That was a constant theme, whether you're looking at Cicero or Seneca or whomever in the Roman world. The constant theme was that, of course, our rights can change mm -hmm. because we're learning. Yeah, You can never say there's, you know, for sure. Mm -hmm. how, how can you know for sure that the, the things of heaven? Right. You know? Um, and so for the Romans, it was, what can we observe and then learn about the gods? And, and if something doesn't work, let's change it. Right? So, um, Instauratio, repeat. Emendatio, alteration. Mm. So if you're doing a rite, you're making a sacrifice, you're saying a prayers, right? And it works, repeat it. Oh. Instauratio. If it doesn't work, emendatio, mm -hmm. alteration, change it. Side, this kind of leaks into Roman Catholic faith too, mm -hmm. religion too, right? the canon must be prayed properly, right. right? If it's not prayed properly, right? Or if you bring out, if you pray it 
and you you realize you don't have enough hosts, you have to bring those hosts out. You have to re-consecrate it, right? Yeah. You can't just oh yeah, throw them in, right? There's there's so a little bit of that Romanness is in the Catholic uh, Catholic faith. But anyway, you so change was fine with the Romans mm-hmm. because it's not about knowing absolutely all the time what God wants. Yeah, it's about growing in that knowledge. Right. So super important. It's the empirical discovery of yeah. what the gods want. That's right. Um, because Christian. to them, the gods were much nearer to the ancients than they are to them in the present day. That was one of the things that, that they believed was that, um, that's why even a lot of the old myths and stuff, the gods are constantly interacting with humans, like in this very, you know, imminent way. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, well, the, well, the ancients were very close to the gods. Um, so, you know, so they, that's why they trusted a lot of tradition, but then also going forward, there's this, like you said, this empirical approach of how are we going to navigate this relationship with the gods? And, yeah. um, and the other thing that the Romans pride themselves on was being able to enable, like you said, when they're standing before a city, they bring out this, right. We're like, come on our side because not only do we know how to worship the gods properly, but also we know how to have, um, such a legal system that it enables the, the people of this city to worship the gods more piously like mm-hmm. that they've that in the way that they are accustomed to doing it yeah um so it's like our laws don't Im, Im, impinge that at all but encourage it yeah and, and that's that's kind of how they saw that yeah and, and one of the characters of the romans was that they're super super scrupulous mm-hmm. about their faith because they knew that we have to do it exactly correctly otherwise we're not going to know if it worked or not yeah so you have to stick to what you know what's written down stick to those prayers stick to those hymns stick to that sacrifice don't change anything. Yeah. Because then we're not going to be able to discern if we did it correctly or not. And we're not going to know when to change it and how to change it if we don't do that. Mm-hmm. So some of the formality of the Romans, I'd like to read a source. Yeah. <clears throat> oh. So navigating the microphone here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're going to see a couple things in this source. This is from Pliny. Okay. Um, so I'll just go through most of it. I'll skip some. Uh, to slaughter a sacrificial victim without a prayer does not seem to be of any avail or to constitute due consultation of the gods. In addition, there is one formula for obtaining favorable omens, another for averting evil, another for praising the gods. And we see that the highest magistrates employ definite formulas in their prayers, that not a single word may be omitted or said out of its proper place, that someone dictates from writing and another is assigned as watcher to listen carefully and a third is placed in charge of ordering that ceremonial silence be maintained while a flutist plays to prevent any other words from being heard there are memorable instances on record of the times when unlucky portents impeded and spoiled the ceremony and when there was a mistake in the prayer there still exists an outstanding example in the formula and he goes through a couple examples here we know these from a couple hundred years ago um, indeed, a, a Greek man and woman, uh, their prayers have been dictated to us. If anything should, if anyone should read the prayer used for this ritual, which is customarily dictated by the master of the College of the Fifteen, he would assuredly admit the potency of the formulas, all of which are confirmed by the experience of 830 years. Mm. Various Flaccus, he was a scholar in, in Rome, Various uh, Flaccus. He got a lot of flack for this too, by the way. Yeah, he did. Cites authors whom he considers reliable to show that in sieges, it was the practice of the Roman priests before all else to summon forth the tutelary divinity of the town 
and to promise him the same or more splendid rites among the Romans. And this ritual still exists in the discipline of the pontiffs. Mm-hmm. So we see the formalism. Yeah. We see there's checkers. There's a second and third person present at the rites to make sure, hey, is that priest doing what he's supposed to be doing? Right. And you over there, play the flute, because I don't want any other words getting mixed up with the priest's words. Yeah. Right? we got to block out all other sound. Okay, we can't have anything else going ascending to the gods but the priest's words. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, at the end, you see uh, the concept of evacatio, the, the summoning forth of the other town's god. Hey, come on over to our side. Mm-hmm. We know how to appease you. Right. We're the best at what we do. Right. We're a pious people. <clears throat> Great. That's how, well, that's how the Romans saw themselves, right? Mm-hmm. They saw themselves as the most pious of all the ancients. Yeah, there's a, there's a sense in which the Romans... Um, and, and whether or not, you know, on the ground and at all times, this is true. But in our popular imagination, because of a lot of Christian uh, propaganda throughout the ages about Rome, we tend to think of like these like Bacchic orgies for their worship, you know, and like temple prostitution all, you know, all day long and, um, you know, uh, ec- ecstasy and ecstatic rites and stuff. That is not how the Romans would have characterized their religion. Right. Um, <clears throat> the Romans prided themselves on actually being uh, the most sober worshipers of the gods. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would, uh, you know, every now and then if they're going to, if they're going to poke fun, they would poke fun, <laughs> poke fun at some of the, the excesses in Greek piety that the Greeks would tend to have this kind of sexual element to the worship of the gods. Um, and that, that they would be um, ecstatic and um, emotional and these kinds of things. Well, it's exactly what they charge the Christians with too. Yeah. Orgies in, in their secret little meetings. Yeah, exactly. So the Romans saw themselves as a very rational and, and sober um, people in, in their piety to- towards the gods. And, um, and, and that's significant because, you know, so a lot of times we think of Greek, uh, you know, Greece and Greek religion as sort of like, the beginning of the West, but actually, Greek society was was kind of the the final Near Eastern yeah, the tail end society. of Near Eastern. <laughs> right? It's like the tail yeah. end of the the Near Eastern empires. Yeah. Um, so so really, if you want to understand Greek religion, you you actually have to go more towards the Levant, uh, you know, down yeah. into Egypt. Uh, think about the Phoenicians, right? But with with Rome. They were a little bit of their own thing, like from they traced themselves to the Etruscans. We have something from Cicero on the um, how the Romans are the most astute and the most religious people. So, in the Nature of the Gods, he writes, "If we care to compare our national characteristics with those of foreign peoples, we shall find that while in all other respects we are only the equals or even the inferiors of others, yet in the sense of religion." That is, in worship for the gods, we are far superior. So there's a sense, uh, and especially that, you know, coming from someone who is um, a philosopher himself and a statesman, he he prides himself on the sobriety of the religion and the intellectual um, approach of the relig- of the religion. Um, so that's that's something that we need to understand when we're talking about, you know, how do Romans see themselves as as compared to other nations? Yeah. and it's 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 it's. Um... It's, it's said by many others, too, right? So another example, Marcus Masala in 193 BC says that we have wholly and constantly attached the highest importance to piety toward the gods. One can estimate particularly from the goodwill that we have experienced on this account from the divine. 
Not only that, but for many other reasons, we are convinced that our own high respect for the Godhead has become manifest to the whole world. So there's a lot of places where this is being said, and clearly the Romans thought of that way themselves, but I think the ancient peoples would have agreed that the Romans were very scrupulous in their religion. Um, that I think that's across the, um, across the spectrum. But there's a word that keeps coming up that it was very, very important to the Romans. And that's the word piety, mm -hmm. right? Pietas. Take us through a little bit of pietas. So pietas for the Romans, uh, you really put me on the spot, huh? Take me back to my graduate days. Um, so pietas uh, to the Romans, if you were to sum it up. Yeah, let, just... me, let me take this one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't like where you're going with that. Um, if you were to sum it up into uh, one statement, it would be one's um, religious and, and, and civic duty to the family, to the state, and to the gods. Um, so you had, um, a duty to the paterfamilias, especially, uh, the father of the family. And when we say the family here, I'm not talking about the nuclear, I'm not talking about like, you know, a father, a mother, and some kids, uh, I'm talking about a father, mother, kids, slaves, um, all of the, ex all of these extensions of the household, um, especially if you're a wealthy Roman. Um, so there was, there was a duty to, um, to show piety, not only to the father of the family, but then also in the home. The household gods, um, which you can maybe expand on a little bit, yeah. and then um, duty to the state itself, to the to the public arena, um, <clears throat> how you how you serve the public thing. See, so that defines piety, right? Mm -hmm. So to be pious in our in our Christian context, to be pious means oh, you know, he's devoted or he prays a lot or something. <laughs> but but to the Romans, piety meant a duty to these three things, yeah, and the right order duty to those three things. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why Sciencia Celandorum Deorum is so important. The knowledge of how to appease or how to cult the gods yeah. was super important because how could we be pious if we don't know how to give them cult? Right. So one of the great founding, foundational stories of the Romans is the story of Aeneas. Okay. Uh, Aeneas escapes from Troy and... Troy is sacked. He escapes from the city. Wallace has sacked York. <laughs> Braveheart. Aeneas is uh, leaving Troy, and he goes on this Mediterranean journey. Uh, but as he's leaving Troy, he's carrying a few things. He's carrying his father mm -hmm. on his shoulder, and then he's carrying his father who is carrying the household gods, mm -hmm. the penates, as the Romans called them. That right there... The pinatas. Is the pinatas. <laughs> that right there is the perfect image of what Romans meant by pietas. Yeah. By piety. He's carrying the leftovers of his civilization from Troy, the state. He's carrying his father, mm -hmm. the ones who came before him, his family, and his father is upholding the gods, the gods carrying them away from the trouble. Yeah. Um, and, and as Aeneas goes through this journey in the Mediterranean, he ends up in Italy and he intermarries with the locals. And this is where the Latins are born. The Latin peoples are born. When in Rome, right? When in Rome. <laughs> um, and so uh, Rome, uh, the city, actually, the, the, when we think of the sacred center of Roman religion, it actually wasn't necessarily the Palatine Hill. Or the Aventine or the Capitoline Hill or you know Jupiter's temple on Capitoline Hill it, 
the center of Roman sacred traditional religion was actually in Lavinium, because that's where, by legend, Aeneas landed, married, settled, and placed those penates, the, the household gods. And where's that in respect to, uh, to Rome? It's outside of Rome. Okay. It's away from Rome. It's not in Rome. So Lavinium and its temple was actually the center of Roman religion. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the gods that resided there did not have names. But the Romans saw them as praesentissimi, uh, the most present ones. Mm. And they referred to them as the great ones. They never even named them. But they knew that those were our ancestral gods there. Those right. are the gods that Aeneas brought to us. Those are our roots. That we ought to honor. And those gods never left Lavinium. They stayed in Lavinium. There were no other shrines throughout the empire to the Penates. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're there in, in, in Lavinium. Um, that's important because we've been talking so far about the kind of the, the public perspective and the public mindset of Roman religion. Okay. There's this whole other asset aspect to Roman religion, I would say. Whole other aspect to Roman religion that is domestic. Mm-hmm. And it's ingrained in the homes of, of Romans, of all these Romans. You couldn't go anywhere in the house without encountering the gods. This is really significant. I think this part of it is really significant uh, to, to really get into the minds. Of, we, we can tend to see Roman religion from this kind of top-down model of like, you know, the emperor and the imperial cult and, 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 and the religion of the cities and the public spectacles and events. But I want to know what does it look like inside of the daily life of a normal Roman joke. Yeah, for, for the Romans. Again, that's why we're not concentrating on the Pantheon. Okay, the Pantheon's there. Yeah. The temples are there. The sacrifices and rites and priests are all there. That's all great. But to the everyday Roman, the vitality of the religion lay within the home. 